Philippians chapter 1. You can go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles. And if you're taking notes tonight, the title of tonight's message is Not Done Yet. Not Done Yet. And the subtitle of this message is Life, Death, and Why You're Still Here. And we're going to be in Philippians 1, 19 through 26. So as you turn there, tonight I want to tell you that we're going to be diving into some of the most exciting and emboldening words you've probably heard in a long while. We're going to examine what Paul teaches, what he writes to this church at Philippi, what he tells them about what it means to live, about what it means to die. And why you and I, and he included at that time of him writing it, why we're still here. Now it might come as a surprise to some of you that I use the, the words exciting and emboldening in the same sentence as talking about death. But when you have a biblical perspective, as I hope you will have by the end of this message, you will understand If we grasp what Paul is writing to this church at Philippi, we will walk away excited to live for the Lord and to have a proper perspective on death. You know, am I the only one? I don't think I am because I've asked people this question before, but am I the only one who's ever thought, you know, why didn't just at the moment of salvation we just shoot up to go be with the Lord right then and there and be spared from a life of of trouble and difficulty and trials and all of that, it'd be pretty convenient, wouldn't it? It really would. You know, given that Jesus saved us from eternal wrath, why didn't he just take us up right then and there at that moment of salvation? And I kind of want you to keep that thought in the back of your mind as we chug along through tonight's message. Why, Why didn't he just take us up right then and there? Why am I still here? There's this thing you could go online, it's kind of weird to to see behind a screen, uh, a computer screen or a phone screen, but it's this thing called the World Death Clock. Um, And it's, it's, it's wild because you're just sitting there and you're seeing this giant number just tick up, 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 up every single second, signifying that someone has just died. Someone has just entered into an eternity either with God or an eternity without God. And that number just ticks up every single second. The world death clock, they estimate that every second nearly two people die. Every minute, it's around 107 people. Every hour, around 6,400 people will die. Every day, 153,000 people, they estimate. Every month, 4.7 million. And every year, 56 million. And obviously, this does not account for the amount of people being born. But we're talking about how quickly and how much of a reality death is. And while those are just estimates, there's no way for them to have that fast of a count just as people are dying. It just goes to their database and they're just that number goes up. There's no way. It's an estimate. But this statistic is 100% accurate. That one out of every one people will die. And obviously we know that the, the generation that is privileged enough to get raptured up by the Lord Jesus, that will not be the case for them. 
And I hope that we are that generation. I hope that we're that people group. That even tonight, that we could just go up and be with him. That would be amazing. That's what I want. That's what I'm praying for. And that's what I'm living for every day. And that's what I want to be ready for. But if the Lord should tarry, you and I will all face death. And we need to have a biblical perspective on what death is. And in order to have a proper biblical perspective on death, we actually have to have a proper perspective on life. William Wallace, the Scottish revolutionary, once said, Every man dies, not every man really lives. And as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I, we ought to be the people who know what it means to really live. We shouldn't be just those who are alive. We should be those who are really living. Those who don't have Jesus, they don't know these things. They don't know how to have a proper perspective on life and death because they don't have Jesus. They don't have his word. They have access to it, obviously, but they're not opening up scripture to learn from these things because they do not know the Lord. But in our text tonight, we'll see how Paul, he will make this awesome comparison of life and death and how you and I as Christians are to live in the balance between the two. So if you'll stand for me for the reading of the word of God tonight, I'm going to start out in verse 19. I'll take the odds. You guys take the evens. And you guys will bring it home with verse 26, and then we'll pray together and get into things. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Let's pray together. God, would you do the miracle of what you do in applying your word to our hearts, Lord? We ask that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would just be so captivated by you and by your holy scriptures tonight, Lord, and that we would leave this place just really on fire for you, God. And we look to you for these things. Bless this time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we were to just jump straight into breaking down this portion of scripture Without getting a little bit of context, I think we would actually be doing ourselves a disservice tonight. And so before we start breaking down the text and we get into our points for the night, I want to talk to you about what is happening in the, apostles, the Apostle Paul's life as he writes to this church in Philippi. 
The letter to the Philippians, if you did not know, is one of Paul's notorious prison epistles. At this point in his life, he's in prison. In verses 13 through 14 of chapter 1, just a couple of verses, we didn't read them, but a couple of verses before our text tonight, he talks about how his chains are in Christ. And leading up, honestly, to this moment of Paul writing Philippians, his life was like a movie. It was pretty amazing. You ought to read the book of Acts and just study his life. It was crazy. In Jerusalem, around 57 AD, Paul, he was, he was recognized by some unbelieving Jews who seized him. They took him. And they took him and they beat him. They laid stripes on him. And they were seeking to kill him because they thought that he was a heretic. Basically, the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar, which Jerusalem was under Roman control. And so the Romans stepped in and they're like, what is going on? Why is this whole city going crazy? And they find out that Paul is at the center of this, that the people, this disturbance is all about them wanting to kill Paul. And so the Romans, to try and kind of gain control of the situation, they, they seize Paul, they take him, and they take him to a Roman barracks where he asks for permission. This is, this is so just like the Apostle Paul. I mean, you couldn't stop the guy. You couldn't. He's just so bold. And rather than just going straight to the barracks, Paul asks the commander, he says, can I actually talk to that violent mob that wanted to kill me? Can I, can I spend some time talking to them for a second? And he does. The Roman commander... He lets Paul talk to these people, and Paul, he goes on to share his testimony with them about how the Lord Jesus got a hold of his life on that road to Damascus and changed everything, and how he went from being a persecutor of Christians, a persecutor of those of the way, as it was referred to back then, to being one of the biggest proponents of Christianity the world has ever seen, if not the biggest. His life was radically changed, and he shares this with these people. And like you'd imagine, they weren't happy about it. (laughs) They hear him out, they listen to him, but in the end, they still want him dead. And so the commander then again takes him to the barracks where he is scourged, and it is then when the apostle Paul reveals his Roman citizenship to them. He says, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? And they all just like, what? A Roman citizen? You're a Roman citizen? And he talks about how he is. And so the commander is like, okay, go back to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing body. So he sends him back, and it doesn't take long before things are getting out of hand again. And so he goes back to the barracks. As I'm telling you, it's like a movie. And while Paul is in the barracks, Paul's nephew, actually, comes and warns the Roman commander that the Jews, they had actually made a vow that they were not going to eat, sleep, or drink anything until Paul was dead. And Paul's nephew finds out about this, goes and tells the Roman commander. And the commander, he responds by assembling a guard to take Paul to Governor Felix. He's like, we got to get this guy out of here. It's too crazy around here. So Felix, he goes to Felix. And Felix, he questions Paul on some things and says that he's also going to talk to Paul's accusers. And find out what's going on. And so the high priest and his, his cronies come to Felix and they give a case for why Paul 
why he should be put to death. And (laughs) Felix, he plays just politician. He does what politicians do. Doesn't do anything about the situation. I shouldn't say that about all politicians, but I think you know what I mean. And he keeps Paul actually in prison. He doesn't do anything about the situation. He just keeps Paul in prison until he actually retires. Then a new guy takes over. His name's Festus. And two years later, after some time, it's about two years, give or take, the high priest comes back to this new guy, Festus, and is like, hey, this guy Paul who's been in prison, we want him dead. We haven't forgotten about him. And so the high priest, you know, he's talking about the go- talking about, to the governor about Paul. And after dealing with enough of Festus's nonsense, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, to Caesar you'll go. And so Paul is sent to Caesar on a voyage, and he's shipwrecked on the island of Malta. He does some ministry there for about three months. Some pretty cool things happen. But after about three months, they again, they set sail to Rome. And upon arrival in Rome, Paul, he's delivered as a prisoner. So pretty much as he lands on the shores, he's arrested, he's taken into imprisonment. And this two-year-long imprisonment in Rome was actually somewhat loose. It was more of like a house arrest type situation, more than like a jail cell type situation. And so Paul is confined to a house, but he's allowed to have visitors. He's allowed to still do ministry. And it's here during this imprisonment where Paul writes to the church of Philippi. All the while, Paul is awaiting the outcome of this trial that's been looming over his life for years now. He's awaiting, finding out what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen to him. But he was busy about his father's business. He was busy doing ministry during this imprisonment. And he writes to this church in Philippi that he had once visited. And he writes this, and keep this in your mind, he writes this not knowing what's going to happen to him. He greatly loved this church at Philippi. And he wanted to be with them. But he didn't know what was going to happen to him. And so that's the context. That's what brings us to our text tonight in Philippians 1. And I want to reread it just for the sake of repetition is a good thing. But look down in your Bibles or look to the screens as we look at our first point, which is point one, to live, to live. And we see this in verses 19 through 22. Paul says, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. And like we said in the beginning, there's a big difference between being alive and really living. And Paul understood what really living meant. He understood it as to live as Christ. And this ought to be our motto. 
As believers, we are the ones, not the world, we are the ones who know what it means to truly live. The world has no idea, but we do because we know the giver of life. We know our creator. We are in fellowship with him because of Christ. Real life is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. John 10.10, after the teaching of Jesus being the good shepherd, he says this, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's Satan's will for your life. That's what he wants to do in your life. He may cloak it and disguise it in other ways, but his goal is to steal, to kill, and destroy. But what is the goal of Christ? I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And a question I want to challenge you all with tonight is what is my life centered around? What is your life centered around? Because the reality is whatever your life is centered around, that is your identity. And Jesus wants to be our only identity. He wants to be the center of our lives. He desires to be the one that we find true identity in, true life. I mentioned it at the beginning, but Matthew 6.33, that camp verse I told you about, this is what Jesus says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And in verse 19 of our text tonight, we read of how Paul, amidst the uncertainty of his situation, he had a sense of confidence in his deliverance because of two realities. Note them down. One, he was being prayed for by the Philippians. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. If you've ever done any research into The persecuted church, those across the world who are being persecuted because of their faith in Christ, you know that the one thing that they ask for is not money, it's not food, though those things would absolutely help them, what they want every single video from someone in a distant land who's enduring rough persecution, they always just ask for prayer. Because they know that prayer matters and God moves when we pray. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. That's how you and I ought to pray for them who are persecuted. As if we're in those chains with them. Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. You know, those of the persecuted church are as much of the body of Christ as any single one of us are. And we need to pray for them. And I encourage you, maybe just jot it down somewhere, to look up the organization. This is just one of many, but the Voice of the Martyrs. And get on their prayer chain or follow their social media where they will post updates and say, this is what's going on with this pastor or this ministry group. Please pray this way. And you can pray specifically. We ought to pray for those. Just like the Philippians were praying for Paul, we ought to pray for those who are in situations of persecutions. Paul knew that their prayers, the Philippians' prayers, were being heard by God. And it brought great comfort to him. But the second thing was the supply 
of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is amazing. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit gave Paul peace, comfort, strength, boldness, confidence, patience, you name it. Everything Paul needed for that present situation, this imprisonment that he was encountering, the Holy Spirit was with him and was giving him everything he needed. And you know, my main prayer for anyone who's going through a trial or a sickness, I always pray first and foremost that the Spirit of God would manifest himself to that person or those people. And that he would just make himself so real to them that they would experience his presence. Because the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ provides everything we need to get through those tough times. I want you to look back to verse 20 in your Bibles. And you'll see how Paul understood that if he was to live on... If he were to be granted more life by God, it would be for the purpose of magnifying Christ Jesus. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, your sole purpose is to magnify Christ. And no, that is not a typo. You might think, well, S-O-L-E is probably the right word to put right there. And I suppose that's a, a fine word to put because it is your singular purpose. But the purpose of your very soul, if you're a Christian tonight, is to magnify the Lord Jesus. The, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The word magnify in the Greek is megaluno. And what it means is to deem or declare great, to esteem highly, to extol, laud, or celebrate. To give glory and praise. Luke 1 verses 46 through 47. The song of Mary. This is awesome. She says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Same word, megaluno. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Too many people are just floating through life. Too many Christians are just floating through life not knowing their purpose. But this should not be the case for the Christ follower. Our purpose is made very clear. It's to magnify Christ. To exalt Him. The Westminster Catechism on the chief end of man. They were asked, what's the chief end of man? They said the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we do. Glorify Him, magnify Him, and enjoy Him. You ought to enjoy the Lord every day. God wants you to understand that the very purpose for your existence is to magnify Jesus. Now I want to ask you all tonight, what comes to your mind when you hear the word magnify? A a magnifying glass, right? Yeah. Or you might, you know, maybe some of you thought of like a microscope or a telescope. Think about what these things do. The object that they are magnifying is not literally getting bigger, but the view, the perspective of it does. And in the same way, you and I were just walking around trying to just be magnifying glasses for Jesus. It's awesome. 
John Phillips, he says this, Paul wanted to be a telescope to bring Jesus closer to their consciousness so that they could see him in all his glory and grace. Paul wanted to be a microscope to enlarge their vision of Christ. I like that. To be a magnifying glass for Jesus, to magnify him in all that we do. Sure, you may be a teacher, but be a teacher that magnifies Christ. I was just uh, the other night playing pickleball with a friend. That's kind of my new hobby. It's a lot of fun. But I was playing with a friend, and uh, we were just kind of talking in between games, and he was telling me how he's a teacher in the public school system, but this guy's a believer, loves the Lord, and he told me, he said, you know, I really see that as my mission field. And I said, right on, man. That's exactly how you should see it. God has you where you're at to magnify Jesus. Maybe you're a salesman. Be a salesman that magnifies Christ. If you're a secretary and you work in an office and it tends to be rather mundane, who cares? Be a magnifying glass for Jesus. What if you're a construction worker and you you know that the construction field is just, you know, guys' language and just what they talk about is, is gross and sinful. Be a magnifying glass for Christ. I think you get the point now, but whatever you do, glorify the Lord Jesus. Magnify him in what you do. And Paul, he had this mindset of, if I live, Christ will be magnified through my life. And if I die, Christ will be magnified through my death. And I want you to now turn your attention to verse 21 where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens some of the most faith-boosting words in all of Scripture. At least that's my opinion. When he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Pretty easy verse to memorize. I would encourage you to do it. But I want to focus on the first half of that statement before we focus on the second in the next point. But he says to live is Christ. These amazing four words are genuinely four words that you can base your entire existence around, and you should. This is your purpose, to live as Christ. H.A. Ironside, Bible commentator, says, We may better understand the meaning of Philippians 1.21 if we consider for a moment what life means to many others. The Christless businessmen whose one aim is to obtain wealth, might say, to to me, to live is money. The careless seeker after the world's pleasures, if he told the truth, would say, to me, to live is worldly pleasure. The carnal individual given to luxurious living and self-gratification would say, to me, to live is self. The politician exulting in the plaudits of the people And craving notoriety might declare, to me, to live is fame and power. But Paul could say, and every Christian should be able to say, to me, to live is Christ. But what exactly, what exactly does it mean to live as Christ? In another epistle, Galatians 2.20, you may be familiar with the verse, it's one of the more famous verses in the Bible and just an outstanding, like if you don't have, like if people ask you, what's your favorite Bible verse? Here's a good one. Pick it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I want to actually park here at Galatians 2.20 for a few moments, and I want to break it down into four ways as we seek to understand what it means to live as Christ. The first way to live as Christ means coming to the reality that you've been crucified with Christ. The reality for the believer is you have been crucified with Christ. You and I, we are to reckon the BC version of us as dead. Day by day, we must do this. Colossians 3.3 says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, everybody here, you're still breathing. If you're not, let us know. We'll get someone over to you. But you're still here. You're still physically here. You're still physically alive. But if you're a believer, your old man, your old woman of sin is to be reckoned as dead. Romans 6, 6 says, Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Too many Christians are walking around still slaves of sin when they've been freed from it. The victory is won. Jesus defeated sin once for all. Walk in that freedom. We were once slaves of sin, but we no longer are. We once lived for the desires of our sinful flesh, but because we were crucified with Christ, this is no longer the case. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, to be in Christ means that you are a follower, you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. The old you, he's passed away. He's gone. Behold, all things have become new. Regarding the second part of to live as Christ and looking at Galatians 2.20, it means having the mentality that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is important. You know, a lot of people, they give their lives to Jesus as Savior but they don't, they, they don't act like he's their Lord. They still act like they're calling the shots, that it's their life to still be lived. But if you know him as Savior, you obviously know him as Lord. You can't separate those two. If you do, I would argue that's a false conversion every time. Amen. If he is your Savior, he's your Lord. Amen. He calls the shots because he lives through you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Everybody repeat after me. I am not my own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are whose? Are they yours? Yeah. Nope. They are God's. It's not our life anymore because Christ paid for it. He bought us. He bought us at a price, and that price was his own blood. You see, we're willingly surrendered. We, are, we have willingly surrendered our lives to Christ 
Because we want to live for his will and his purpose and we have experienced his salvation. We have experienced the love of God. Paul, he says, Christ lives in me. In Galatians 2.20, he says, Christ lives in me. And I believe this is twofold. This is the indwelling of the spirit of God. How every true believer, you have the spirit of God living within you. But the second part, I believe that it refers to being a vessel for the Lord. How he wants to use you to carry out his will. We could say it as this, that Christ lives through me. He lives in me and he lives through me because my life is surrendered to him. Thirdly, to live as Christ means having the lifestyle that is by faith in the Son of God. You know, our faith is not to be quiet and invisible. Rather, it's to be loud and on display for all to see through what the Bible refers to as good works. Our faith is to affect every single part of us. Maybe you have a compartmentalized relationship with God where he's your God at church and maybe your God in the home, but when you go to work, it's, it's, you, it's the you show, or when you go here, or no, no, no. He is to be first in everything in your life. James 2, 17 through 18, the, in the infamous portion of scripture about faith and works, James says this, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You don't want that faith. It's not real. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And I love, I love the tenacity of James. He says, show me your faith without your works, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. You're going to see my faith. See, living by faith in the Son of God also means that we conduct ourselves in constant trust in Him and in His plans, even when we can't see it. We trust in Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't have to see where I'm going because I know who I've placed my faith in. I know God knows where He's taking me. I don't have to know. I don't have to see it because I know Him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, amazing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Words to live by. Fourthly, to live as Christ means having the motivation of Christ's love and His sacrifice. See, because you and I, if you're a believer tonight, because we've encountered the love of God in Christ Jesus, in what he did for our sins, we willingly live for him. We don't begrudgingly live for him. We've encountered the very love of God. And so because we've encountered it, it's, it's a natural response. Romans 12:1 talks about how it's our reasonable service to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. Because we've experienced his love. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ compels us. And so however much time God may grant us here on this earth to live as Christ. And so I want to now move on to the second half of that statement that Paul makes in verse 21. When he says, To die is gain. And we see this in verses 21 through 23. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
For I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. The reason why Paul could have such confidence in life was because of his great confidence in death. He had the right perspective and the right outlook on what it means when someone who is in Christ dies. I love how J. Vernon McGee, Pastor Jack, he does a pretty good impression of J. Vernon McGee. I'm not even going to try. But if you know J. Vernon McGee, he had a very unique voice. Actually, I, I listened to J. Vernon McGee a lot. Um, and not all that long ago, I saw a picture of him. And I'm like, wait, that voice does not fit that face. And his, couldn't like make it work in my mind. But I know it was him. <laughs> but he says, if to live is Christ, then to die would be more of Christ. Amen. Oh, that's so good. That is so good that if to live is Christ, if I'm living for Jesus right now, that when I die, it's just more of Jesus. It's the most of Jesus. It's to be in his very presence. But the world, as you and I know, they hate to talk about death because they're not at peace with it. I was sharing my faith with a a guy not all that long ago at, you name it, the pickleball courts. (laughs) I was talking to this guy and I just told him, I said, you know, he didn't really have a desire for the Lord and I hope, you know, that conversation yielded fruit in his life. But one of the things I kind of left him with as he was leaving, I just said, you know, one of the main things about my faith is I'm at peace with death. Could go at any moment and that's fine. Like, how can that be fine? Because I understand that to die is gain. To die means I get to go be with my Jesus. See, the world, it's, death is not gain for the world. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it is not a gain to the world when they die without Jesus. It is the very opposite of gain. But it's not so for the Christian. It is gain. Because we have absolute assurance of what happens to us when we die. And if you don't have that absolute assurance, then... Ask the Lord if you're really a child of God because the child of God has this assurance. They know that whenever I breathe my last, whenever it's my time, whenever my appointed time to die is, I'm going to go be with Jesus. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, that is referring to Christ, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, through what he did, through his death for us on the cross, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There are millions, if not billions of people who are still living their lives in fear of death and and are in bondage to it, quite frankly, because they don't know the one who's defeated it. You know, COVID, yeah, there's, there goes that church again talking about COVID. And <laughs> COVID really revealed to us how many people are living in fear of death. You know, we may have not have known how many people that actually was up until COVID. When we didn't know what was, you know, going on. You remember the first initial stages of it all? Even I was like, what is happening, you know? And then we learned as time went on, but... Nonetheless, so many people just continued to just show how, how much in fear of death they really were. How they would do anything to not die. Because they're in bondage to its power. 
But if you know Christ, His will is that you no longer live in the fear of death. He's conquered it. Notice what Paul says here in Philippians 1 regarding death. What does he say? He says, to die is gain. And he says in verse 23, he says that he has a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, far better, way better. That word gain, what it means is advantageous. It means it's the better choice. The word depart, I love this. I love this imagery of this word. The word depart, it lends itself to the imagery of a a ship just kind of sailing off into the distance into the open waters until it's all the way out of sight. This is how it is for the believer. It's like we sail off into the presence of our beloved Jesus. And in comparing life and death side by side, Paul, he makes it clear that death is actually the superior of the two things for the Christian. You're like, how can this be? Because we recognize that Christ has defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. I love this so much. I feel like I've said I love this a lot tonight, but I do. <laughs> I love all of it. God's word's amazing. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Amen. <laughs> Jesus beat death. The grave has no more power. If you're in Christ, the, the death has no more power over you. Uh, every year around Easter time, um, Resurrection Sunday, around that time, I always share this picture on my social media. We could go ahead and put it up. I love this. this is a, it's, it's a meme or whatever you want to call it, the art. But if you know that pose, you know that's the Muhammad Ali pose after he knocked the guy out. And that's Jesus standing over death. That's what Jesus did. He, he destroyed it. It has no more power over you and I. It's done. He defeated it. It wasn't even a contest. You see, for for us, you guys, for the believer, we recognize that death is just like a graduation for us. Not all that long ago, we had junior hires graduating into high school. We had high schoolers graduating if if they went to college, but they graduated into, I guess, adult life, you could say, college graduates ton of graduations happened not all that long ago. The concept of a graduation is moving from one thing to a better thing. And death is like that for us. We move from this life, which don't get me wrong, to live as Christ is amazing. And we should live with that purpose. But then we move on to something that's even better, which is eternity with our Lord. When a believer in Christ passes away, they go directly into the presence of the Lord. He's, Paul says, he says, I'm going to depart. If, if I could just depart and be with Christ, that was his desire. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says this. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, meaning while we're here, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. For we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body, And to be present with the Lord. See, because of all of these realities, because Jesus is the victor over death, you have no reason to fear it. Mark Twain, not a Christian, but he said this, the fear of death follows from the fear of life. 
A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. And while he may have had another concept of what it means to live fully, you and I, we know what it means to live fully. It means to live as Christ. And because that is our motto, because that is our purpose, we're prepared to die at any time. And as we sing in that beloved song, we sing it often, the song Christ Be Magnified, such a great song. But one of those powerful lyrics says that death is just a doorway into resurrection life. That's the right perspective. Psalm 116 verse 15 says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How is it precious? Because at that moment, that saint, that child of God, gets to go be directly with their heavenly Father and their Savior. What we must know, what must be known regarding the the fact that to die is gain, and being with Christ is literally far better, and I hate that I have to say this, but I, I do have to say this, is it doesn't give us license to take matters into our own hands, to take our own life. God still has plans for you. If you're, if you're really just going through it right now, and if th- that thought has entered into your mind, get it out. God wants to use you. He has you here for a reason. He's not done with you yet. And while we recognize the theological truth that to die is gain, we are not to take this matter into our own hands. But I want to encourage you tonight that if you've, if you've known someone who's a Christian who committed suicide, who took their own life, be comforted that they did not commit the unforgivable sin. And I really, I don't know where this wonky false teaching of suicide being the unforgivable sin, I have no idea where it came, came from because you're not going to find it in here. Jesus makes it really clear what the unforgivable sin is. He says it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And how does blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, how does it manifest itself? It manifests itself through utterly rejecting Christ until the day that you die. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. That's the only unforgivable sin. And so if you know someone who has unfortunately taken their own life, don't buy into that false teaching. Like I said, I don't even know where it came from, but it's, it's false. It's not true. But like I said, though to die is gain, we entrust the Lord in His timing when our time is to be. He's got an appointed time for us. And until then, to live is Christ. But I want to move on to our closing point tonight, which is why you're still here, to remain. Paul says in verse 24 through 26, he says, Nevertheless, after considering life and considering death and kind of examining those both side by side, he says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. We might be tempted to think, well, if all this amazingness awaits me when I die, when I get to go be with Jesus, why do I still have to be here enduring the difficulties and the trials that I'm facing? Tate, life is hard. I understand. 
God is with you and he still has you here for a reason. Even after Paul considered how much better death really is, he understood that for him to remain alive was more needed for the Philippian church. He says it's more needful for you. And this may sound like a statement of pride, but it's not. You see, Paul was investing himself into this church. He was discipling them. He was like their spiritual father pouring himself into them, teaching them what it means to live as Christ and how to live for Jesus. And he wanted to be with them even longer so he can continue to nourish their spiritual growth. And like Paul, you and I should be able to make that same statement that I'm still here because it's more needful for me to be here for certain people in my life. That's not prideful. Because you and I, we ought to have people that we're discipling. Whether it be children, friends, co-workers, whoever. You ought to be discipling people as a believer. You don't have to be all the way down the road. You just have to be a little bit further down the road than those who you're discipling. You don't have to have it all put together. You just have to have a little bit of it put together. <laughs> Nobody has it all put together. But here's the thing. It's not that they need us. It's that they need the one that we know. Christ Jesus. And we know, or maybe you don't know, but what, what happens is Paul, he ends up being freed from this imprisonment. Because God still had more for him to do, bottom line. And God still has more for you to do tonight. He wants to use you for his purpose and his will in this world. He's still working on you, and he's still working through you. He's still working on you in what the Bible refers to as sanctification. The work of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit comes in and and cleans house. How he gets the bad out that he doesn't want you to be living according to anymore. And he starts to place within you God's desires. And the, just the, the, the longing to live for Jesus and please him in all that you do. But he also still wants to work through you. God wants to use you in amazing ways. And you might be like, Tate, how, how's God going to use me? You don't know me. God knows you. And he wants to use you. And when you begin to understand the sovereignty of God in your life, it's, it's kind of like nothing can stop you. When you have this mindset of Paul, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's kind of like you're invincible until the day that the Lord calls you home. Now, this doesn't give, give us license to go be dummies and, you know, adrenaline junkies and just, you know, doing crazy things and, oh, well, I'm not... Going anywhere till it's God's time for me to go. Just don't be ridiculous. It doesn't give you a license to go be that kind of person, but it does give you a license to be bold for Jesus. And so as we close tonight, from, from here tonight, from this place, until the, the day that the Lord calls us all home, we declare together to live as Christ. Everybody repeat after me. To live is Christ. That is the proper perspective that we must have as we live for Jesus. As we live in this world. We don't merely say this with our lips, but we prove it with our lives. But we must also maintain the proper perspective of death. 
quite literally. It's better than anything here in this world because it then ushers us into the presence of our Lord. The lover of our souls. Our Lord Jesus. Death is merely that door that we must step through to enter into resurrected life with Jesus. And finally, I want to remind you that God still has you here for a reason. It's not by accident that you're still breathing. You could have been dead earlier, but you're not. You're here. And maybe you could be dead tomorrow. Who knows? You don't know. I don't know. I don't know when my time is. But until then, I want to leave it all on the table. I want to make it to the presence of the Lord and hear him say, I know I'm going to make it because I know I'm, I have the righteousness of Christ that's been applied to me. But I want to make it and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And if you still got breath in your lungs, God still wants to work on you and he still wants to work through you. Until you breathe your last, his desire is to use you for his purpose in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we, we look to you tonight and we ask that, Lord, as we exit these doors, as we leave this place, Lord, that we would be bolder for you than we've ever have. Lord, maybe we've already been bold for you. Lord, make us bolder. We want everyone in our lives to know about you, Jesus. Lord, if it's not too much to ask, Lord, would you bring into our lives people who are without you, people who are living in that fear of death, so that we could show them the hope of life. Jesus, so that we could point them to you. Lord, we, we long to be with you. I confess that, Lord, it would be so amazing to just, even right now, just go and be with you. Lord, if you'd rapture us all up right now, Lord, we say yes. But God, we trust your timing. Lord, we know that if, if, if we're still here, then you're not done. God, we don't want to lose sight of that. Lord, help our lives to declare the statement that to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, we plead with you. Would you, would you use us? We present ourselves to you as those living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto you because it's our reasonable service. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us on the cross, how you forgave us when you didn't need to, but because of your great mercy, Lord, you sent your Son to die in our place that we might be forgiven and get to enjoy you forever. Lord, we love you so much. We can't wait to be with you, God. But until then, to live as Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.